Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. We'll discuss bees and pollinators somewhat interchangeably today as we cover everything from threats to how to make our yards and gardens more friendly to pollinating insects, but we'll start by discussing bees and what differentiates them from other insects and different types of bees, including, but not at all limited to honeybees. I should also note it's Pollinator Week, running through Sunday, June 27th. We're thrilled to celebrate pollinators with you and appreciate you sharing this episode and what you've learned with friends and neighbors. Also encourage you to visit pollinator.org to learn about how you can get involved with Pollinator Week wherever you live and garden. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnitz, joined as always by horticulturist and UNH Extension field specialist Emma Erler. Today, we are shifting gears from controlling insects in the garden to supporting them, specifically bees. Emma, I thought we could get started by talking about the different types of bees. I know you're not an entomologist, nor am I, but I think broadly speaking, we can talk about the types of bees, roughly how many species are we talking about in New Hampshire and just what's going on with our native bees? Bees can be categorized in several ways, whether they are solitary or social species or whether they nest in the ground or in a cavity, whether they build or provision their own nests or actually parasitize the nests of other bees and by their foraging habits. Generalists are bees that gather nectar and pollen from a wide range of flower types and species. Most bees are generalists. On the other hand, specialists tend to use a single plant family or genus for their needs. Of the 4,000 bee species that live in North America, more than 90% are solitary, which means each female builds her own nest without the help of any other members of her species. In New Hampshire, there are an estimated 200 species of wild bees. And among the wild bees in New Hampshire, there are several common groups. These are the sweat bees, leafcutter bees, mason bees, and bumblebees. And of course, also domesticated honeybees, which aren't native, uh, but were introduced as livestock, essentially. While it may seem obvious, identifying whether an insect is in fact a bee can be a challenge. Certain flies and wasps can be easily mistaken for bees and vice versa. Unless you have a trained eye, you may have to look pretty closely at an insect to narrow it down, which I know can be a challenge. Wasps are typically streamlined and slender with long legs, whereas bees are less so while also generally being fuzzier. I look at behavior, too, because bees fly quickly from flower to flower, while wasps tend to take their time. And of course, while some wasps do collect pollen, wasps are predators that hunt insects and spiders to feed to their young, while bees feed pollen to their young instead. You may be skeptical that you could mistake a fly for a bee or wasps, but do a quick image search right now for hoverflies. It's amazing how much they really do look like bees. But flies have just one pair of wings, while bees and wasps have two pairs of wings. Uh, when flies land on flowers, and yes, many flies are pollinators, their wings typically fly flat rather than folded over their bodies like a bee would. Flies also have insignificant antenna, which is something I definitely look for. 
And unlike bees, flies lack noticeable bushy hairs on their hind legs, which bees use to carry pollen back to their nests. But be forewarned in the animal kingdom, and I'm highlighting hoverflies here, they generally mimic bees and wasps, insects that sting and also taste unpleasant, so are avoided by predators. A win for hoverflies. And that mimicry, I think, is so incredibly interesting that you just mentioned. If you're paying attention when you're looking at who's on flowers in the landscape or in your garden, a lot of times you will see flies that at a quick glance look very, very similar to a bee. This is called mimicry, where essentially that, that fly is taking some of the benefits of looking like a bee, which, you know, would potentially mean other predators leaving it alone, thinking if there, there might be some consequence to bothering a bee. So you might see a fly that has a, more of a striped pattern uh, similar to a bee. But like Nate mentioned, looking for that single pair of wings is really important. Um, and then, of course, wasps and hornets are always getting confused with bees, which you know, it's also easy to, easy to, I guess, understand uh, for those who aren't entomologists or who aren't real familiar with what these insects are, what they look like, but definitely be looking for, for fuzzy hairs uh, on those, those legs at the very least. Um, You're not going to see those on wasps at all. Something I've spoken about in a previous episode are specifically these ground nesting wasps and bees If you see a hole in the ground and see frenetic activity around it, sometimes, especially if you're scared of bees or wasps and and don't want to get too close to it and aren't going to closely examine them, you may just not be able to tell and might assume the worst that it's some kind of aggressive wasp like a ground nesting yellow jacket. But a lot of times it's going to be a docile bee or wasp. Most of these insects, wasps or bees, tend to only be a threat to people if you are doing something to mess with their nest, particularly the communal species. Uh, I have spent so much time gardening, uh, pretty much my entire life. I've been stung by a whole plethora of bees and wasps, and even some of the you know docile species, the or like bumblebees, for example, which can sting. The only way I've ever been bothered by them is if I've messed around with their nests. So if you see a, a wasp or a hornet nest, um, you know, a, a bee, any sort of bee nest, if you can give it a little bit of space, you're going to be totally fine. And a lot of them, like those bumblebees, the only way that they were bothering me is when I actually took a rake and accidentally raked through their nest. I'm sure if I hadn't have done that, I, I never would have even known it was there. So there's, they're not just flying around looking to sting you. Uh, so if there's a, a wasp or a bee coming at you, no need to panic. Yeah, and I do think it's helpful whether you're raking, whether you're mowing, um, not to completely zone out and kind of forget about the fact that like, hey, you should keep your eyes open because you do not want to run over or rake over a nest of any kind, really. And it's easy to do if you're not paying attention. Or even if you are, it's possible. (laughs) Yes, in my case, it could have been a bit of both. Emma, you had mentioned the decline of native bees. Do you have any more specifics on what's going on? And I will just add 
anecdotally, we've certainly heard from a lot of people this year who are noticing very apparent declines in bees from year to year where they're just not seeing bees pollinating their flowering trees and shrubs, uh, their flowers, et cetera. Uh, whereas in past years, they they might have seen more activity. Well, I think there are probably a few reasons for that, Nate. But the most significant, I think, is ha- is habitat loss. We are seeing increased development pretty much everywhere around the globe. Um, and even in New Hampshire, which is still considered a very rural state, we're still developing uh, tracts of, of more or less virgin land all the time. Uh, and every time that happens, we're potentially losing habitat for bees. So that that's from the human side. So we're we're getting rid of areas where there might be flowering plants that bees could use for forage. Another thing, at least in New Hampshire, too, is that this state has grown increasingly more forested over the decades. You know, if you were if you were to be in New Hampshire, gosh, a number of decades ago, there wouldn't have been as much forest as there is now. Uh, largely from logging um, or from more farmland that's that's no longer maintained, so areas have grown up. So that's something too. There are certainly flowering plants in New Hampshire forests that bees will pollinate. So you know some of the the spring ephemerals, let's say a lot of the wildflowers that we we see in the spring would be pollinated by bees. But for most of the season, there isn't a whole lot there. Where we get the most habitat for bees is going to be in open areas, so in meadows, fields, thickets. And overall, too, just changing climate can have a big impact on insects, too. Uh, we are very well aware uh, that, that climate change is a, is a thing, um, and it absolutely has an impact on pollinators, too. Uh, and really every every single native insect. A lot of these, well, I should say all of these native insects are overwintering in some form in New Hampshire. So whether that's in the egg stage, larval stage, or as an adult. And when they come out of dormancy or when these insects hatch out is really going to be determined somewhat by phenology. Um, so there could be some changes there too. And then another... Topic of conversation always as well is pesticide use in the landscape, particularly insecticide use. We don't have a lot of large farm operations in New Hampshire. Um, and in general, I, farmers are, are trying to use insecticides as, as responsibly as they can. But homeowners can apply, can purchase and apply just about anything that they want. So for those that are, are trying to maintain that, that perfect lawn and garden that doesn't have really any sort of insect damage or weed pressure whatsoever, there's some impacts there. And I, I have to say, I think one of the things that concerns me the most in terms of pollinators, bees in particular, are the tick and mosquito sprays that a lot of people are using around their properties. Uh, these are insecticides, and they're, they're very, very toxic to any sort of insect that comes in contact with them, not just the mosquito that you might be trying to target. Yeah, so there are a lot of threats. Something else that comes to mind for me are invasive plants, which are displacing 
many of our native plants. Not that invasive plants can't have value to pollinators. Certainly something like Japanese knotweed seems to really attract bees when it's in bloom. But the loss of biodiversity um, in our plant communities has an impact that ecologically these native bees have grown to depend on a diverse community of plants that are blooming from early spring to late fall. And when invasive plants, along with development and and other threats to plant communities, reduces that diversity, that can cause problems. And I think that relates to climate change too, because if bees or other insects have evolved to have a more specific relationship with certain plants, and those plants maybe bloom at a different time than historically they have because of a warmer winter or whatever, or warmer soil, whatever the cause may be, that could potentially disrupt the insects that have co-evolved with those plants. Absolutely. And I think something I heard in there, Nate, when you were talking about the diversity of plants, something that we don't always think about is how certain plants are going to be really attractive to a, a certain type of bee. But you're not necessarily going to see every single pollinator that you possibly could on each type of plant that's in the environment or, or in your garden, let's say. So having that whole variety is really important because you're not likely to attract every single pollinator if you just have a handful of species versus the dozens that might have been in an environment historically. Yeah, and we've kept referring to bees and pollinators, and we should acknowledge that bees are just one of the many pollinators that we have in our landscapes. Just to name a few, we already talked about wasps. We already talked about flies, both of which uh, can be pollinators. Certainly butterflies and moths can be very important pollinators, often are. Um, hummingbirds. Uh, I'm not sure, Emma, if there are other birds that can act as pollinators. There are, although probably not in an, our climate. So we're we're really talking ah, about ruby-throated okay. hummingbird in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And what what am I missing there? Well, around here, we could potentially have beetles doing some pollination too. Uh, wow. There are, yeah, actually some, some really interesting flower beetles, which is a, a whole group of beetles that you often see on flowers, which is kind of cool. And if we were in a, a different climate again, we might see bat pollination. So not something you're likely to see in New Hampshire, but certainly some, some of the cacti out west are exclusively pollinated by bats, which is really cool. Yeah, and, and even kind of going back to some of these moths, for example, a lot of pollination occurs at night. Yes, this is true. Uh, some people uh, who are listening out there might have grown before a, a, a night flowering garden. A lot of times that's a lot of white plants that uh, tend to attract night flying insects because uh, that, that white resonates well after dark. Uh, one of my favorites it's kind of for a, a night-blooming plant is moonflower, which is a plant in the morning glory family. And it its flowers are really open from dusk until dawn, essentially. Uh, and you don't see it. The, the blooms open for very long once the sun's up and the day starts to heat up. Yeah, and I, I know I said a lot of pollination, probably not a lot 
at least around here, but some, I, I guess the majority of pollination is occurring during the day, um, which informs people's activities, say, like if you were going to use some sort of pesticide product, uh, generally, right, you're not applying that in the middle of the day when pollinating bees are at their most active. And we'll talk about that more later, but um, there's no perfect way to apply a pesticide because there are some pollinators that are going to be active at maybe any time of day, you know what, but we can, we can probably speak in generalities about what the majority say of bees are doing. I was thinking before we actually jump into landscaping and, and sort of other practices that we can do at our homes and in our yards to support bees that we could actually talk a little bit about honeybees. Uh, so many people, an increasing number of people actually are raising honeybees, whether you just have one hive um, or are an enthusiast that has many hives. Uh, it's increasingly a popular activity, not to mention, of course, honeybees role agriculturally, where they are essentially livestock that have a very specific job, which is to pollinate agricultural crops. And they may even be brought around. I've certainly heard of, and, and I think this is big business in maybe parts of the country where agricultural operations are much bigger, where farmers will rent bees that might travel across state lines, you know, by the, by the millions uh, to be released to say pollinate, you know, your almond crop or something like that if you're in California. Uh, so what are, what are your thoughts on the role of honeybees? Well, I think in the the way agriculture has really, I guess, been designed in this country, the honeybee does have a really important role where there isn't, let's say, a, a lot of habitat for native bees to do the work. So many, you know, many, many years ago, let's say, you know, a few hundred years ago before honeybees were brought over, native bees would have been doing all the work. And you know, even after that, before honeybee keeping you know, really took off, native bees were doing most of the pollination work. Uh, these days, when you have just the acres and acres, let's say, of a single crop and not a lot of natural habitat around and certainly not other forage for those insects. So let's say apples. Apples are, are great forage habitat for bees, but only when they're in bloom. So once those plants have stopped flowering if there isn't a whole bunch of other great habitat nearby. So let's say a, a wildflower meadow, some fields with all sorts of wildflowers in them. You're not going to have a real vibrant native bee population to do the work of pollinating that crop. So it's it's become essential more or less to bring honeybees in. But for in smaller operations, let's say a smaller rural farm in New Hampshire, backyard growers, uh, for a lot of these situations, we're still really dependent on native bees. And we're not getting all of our pollination needs from honeybees. So honeybees, we've come to rely on them quite a bit, you know, overall in the food system. But they're not the only ones out there. And certainly trying to keep your own honeybees is not a solution for saving the bees. Uh, honeybees have some serious issues in terms of disease and uh, parasites 
that are affecting them and making it really difficult for beekeepers uh, to keep them. But if you're just interested in saving bees in general, uh, you're much better off, I think, focusing on the the dozens, if not hundreds, the thousands of other native bee species that live in New Hampshire and, you know, honestly, across the entire world. And I'm certainly completely out of my depth here, but just doing some research, my understanding is that uh, for folks that maybe aren't controlling pests and diseases in their honeybee hives, that potentially can cause spillover problems with maybe wild bumblebee populations or other types of wild bee species. There's a lot of detail that could be you know, the topic of a dissertation, um, and I'm sure is the topic of continuing research, but there's at least some literature out there that suggests that some spillover is possible, which is concerning. Oh, it's absolutely concerning. Yeah, I, th- I think the takeaway message is that if you're interested in honeybees, you have to be thinking about them, like you said, Nate, as livestock, where you are raising these insects, essentially, to produce an agricultural product, that honey. Or, you know, it, perhaps you're really relying on them for pollination because you're not getting enough pollination from native insects. But you're not, you're certainly not saving bees or, or saving, you know, declining bee populations by keeping honeybees. And you may, there may actually be some harm there as well. All right. Well, why don't we get into a topic that I know you're much more comfortable with, which is the landscaping piece of supporting bees. And there are so many different parts of our landscape we can talk about, and I hope we can kind of touch on them all. For me, you know, certainly the most obvious is going to be your flower gardens that we can transform into being as pollinator friendly as possible. And and certainly there are ways of flower gardening that aren't going to be so beneficial to bees. So there's always an opportunity to do that better. But then there are maybe parts of our yards that we don't think of as much when it comes to supporting bees, but can be really important, like flowering trees and shrubs can, can just be bee magnets. We can talk about lawns uh, potentially and how you may be able to make your lawn a little or a lot more bee friendly. We could talk, I think, about our vegetable gardens, our fruit trees, and and how we can, at the very least, minimize negative impacts and maybe even uh, support bees um, actively a little bit in those spaces. Um, I thought we could probably at least touch on the possibility of doing larger scale projects like a wildflower meadow. Um, and there are other parts of the yard, too. Um, where we can create habitat that isn't necessarily somewhere where you're growing plants, but maybe somewhere that you're not. So lots to talk about. And and I know we've already done an episode on flower gardening, but we really didn't focus in that episode on supporting bees. So what are your thoughts, uh, generally speaking, on what what approaches you can take to make your flower garden as supportive to bees as possible? Boy, I'm so glad you asked that question, Nate. To start, if you are really looking to support native pollinators, the best thing you can do is grow native plants. We, For a couple of reasons, right? One, those insects would have co-evolved with those plants. So we, we know that they should be good sources of pollen and nectar to start with. 
Number two, native plants, if you're putting them in a growing environment that they're adapted to, say you're choosing something that grows well in full sun and rocky soil and you're putting it in a full sun, well-drained location in your garden, it shouldn't have any trouble surviving whatsoever. It should be more drought tolerant, shouldn't require a whole bunch of fertilization or winter protection. So you just have a a happier garden from the get-go with plants that you don't really have to fuss over. Beyond that, uh, it's going to be important, too, to plant a wide variety of species. So a whole bunch of of different types of, of flowers, of trees, of shrubs, of vines, so that you're getting a diversity of blooms, which are hopefully going to serve a variety of different species, And you're going to have forage across the entire season, which is really, really important for helping bee populations overall. So that means having plants that bloom in early spring right up through the fall. Now, when you go to plan your garden, in no way do I advocate for just planting native plants. I know I just stress that they're really important, but you can still have a really bee-friendly garden that has some other species, other plant species in it. So you can have some introduced things. And these are going to provide, still potentially provide some some good nectar and pollen. One reason that they are often cut out of the equation when we're talking about pollinator gardens in general is that the native or the non-native species, so things that are introduced from Europe or Asia, let's say, don't tend to be very good larval host plants for insects like butterflies and moths, which is not the focus of our talk today. But oftentimes when we're talking about helping the bees, saving the bees, we're talking about broader, you know, pollinator populations in general. So if you are also a fan of, let's say, swallowtail butterflies in your landscape, you're going to need to have some, some host plants for those caterpillars as well. So getting a little off target here, but yeah. So what, what, the, what's the takeaway? Make sure that you have a diversity of blooms and you're going to have things that are flowering across the entire season. And it does not have to be just herbaceous plants. So your perennials and annuals that should include your trees and shrubs as well. Well, and just on this topic of flowers, uh, when I'm at the garden center, and I know we've done an episode kind of in that setting as well, looking at some of the flowers, it's not always so obvious, number one, whether something is native, and then number two, whether there's potentially some implication of a flower being a cultivar. So what are your thoughts on just how to figure out whether something's native, how to figure out whether it has a lot of value for pollinators or not? And, and, wh- and what about this whole cultivar issue? Figuring out whether something's native. Well, I, what I can say is that a lot of garden centers are starting to put together a section that's just for native plants to make shopping a bit easier for folks. What you're probably going to have to do, though, is a little bit of research on the side, you know, either on the spot uh, looking on your phone to look up a particular species or or ahead of time. You also really need to define, too, what you consider invasive to mean. Uh, for some people, that means, or sorry, what you mean native to mean. For some people, that means just plants that grow in New Hampshire. For others, it might mean things that grow in the wild in New England. And for some, it might mean anything that grows in the wild in North America. 
if you were just trying to grow things native to New Hampshire or New England, that leaves you with a, a pretty small plant palette to choose from. You know, there there aren't going to be a ton of different uh, cultivated plants that you're going to be able to find easily to put into your garden. But there's there's going to be plenty. You may just not have the most exotic looking garden, which as gardeners, as horticulturists, we often want something that is a little bit unusual. So in that case, you might want to broaden your definition of native to include things that are native to North America in general. And I think most people probably fall into this camp because one of the favorite pollinator plants, uh, it's a great one for bees, is purple coneflower, echinacea. This is not a plant that you'd find in New Hampshire or really New England in general. It's a prairie species that you would find more in the Midwest. So you're not going to find that around here, but it grows great in our climate. It's really good for bees. So I, I don't have any issue with planting it in the landscape. Kind of a, a bigger discussion then within the talk of native plants is whether cultivars or cultivated varieties of native species are acceptable for the landscape for bees and other pollinators. And, you know, the jury's still kind of out on this. Some of these plants seem to attract pollinators just as well as as the straight species. In other cases, you may not see as many bees on a plant uh, that is a cultivated variety. So a lot of times what we see in a, a plant that's a cultivar, or if you want to use the term nativar, which basically means native cultivar, you'll see different flower colors, potentially some different flower shapes, or you'll have um, an abnormal number of flower parts let's say double or triple the number of petals that a flower might normally have, and sometimes different colored foliage as well. For bees, the the flowers are probably what's the most important. And when I'm shopping, what I really look to avoid are plants that have double, triple, quadruple the number of petals that they would normally have. Um, Because when that's the case, a lot of times those petals of kind of taking the place of the actual valuable um, reproductive parts of that flower. So there's not going to be nearly as much pollen or nectar, and that plant's not going to be as attractive. Uh, There are definitely, to use the same plant again, purple coneflower cultivars that have been bred this way, so that they have tons and tons of petals, not too many viable reproductive parts, so not producing pollen, not producing nectar, and these just aren't going to be that useful for bees. So you're much better off growing something that's closer to the original, to the straight native. Emma, do you have any favorite, especially bee-friendly pollinator flowers that you want to recommend, maybe besides echinacea? And and I will note we have a nice fact sheet that we'll link to in the show notes uh, that give uh, some of our recommendations in a very nice chart form that aligns with bloom periods. So you can make sure that you're covering all your bases. But what are a few favorites you have? I really like sneezeweed a lot, uh, Hellenium. It's a really nice native flower. It's in it's in that aster daisy family. So it has that a flower that if you're if you're not a botanist, you might say, oh, that that just you know, looks kind of like a daisy. 
really, really great uh, bee forage. And it tends to like a a little bit of a a wetter or richer soil. So if you have that sort of soil, perfect. Uh, Or even if you have an area, let's say, closer to a pond or something like that, where you have a little bit of a a damper, richer soil, that's a plant that's going to do really well and you are going to see a lot of bee activity on it. I also think that Joe Pieweed is one of the best possible plants that you can have in your garden for bees and really all the other pollinators as well. Blooms later in the summer, so you're extending your season with this plant. And it has really dramatic foliage and pink plumes of flowers. And you'll definitely be rewarded with with all sorts of, of bee activity on that plant as well. And then there's a special place in my heart, too, for goldenrod, which is another later summer fall-blooming plant. There are a lot of species, some of which are more appropriate for garden settings than others. But goldenrod is great for bees. You'll often see lots and lots of bee activity on goldenrod. And so you might be cultivating it in your landscape. If you're not, if there's some nearby in the a meadow or a field, appreciate it for the the great forage habitat that it's it's adding to the landscape. And you had mentioned uh, flowering trees and shrubs. What what are some features that you're looking for for those um, that are going to make them especially valuable to bees and other pollinators? And maybe some features or characteristics you might avoid if that's your top concern. And I'm sure you have your favorites here too. Well, usually with trees and shrubs, we're looking at pollen and nectar production on these plants in terms of uh, popularity among bees and bee use. A tree that certainly beekeepers love, but all sorts of native bees will use it as well, is basswood or or linden is the other name for it. Uh, The native species, which is Tilia americana, American basswood, really is just a, a, a bee magnet. And it's, it's blooming this time of year, and some areas might actually already be uh, wrapping up. But the flowers are really rich in nectar. And if you are underneath a basswood, a good way to know is just by the, the buzzing or humming sound that you'll hear beneath it. And that tree is also potentially going to be good nesting habitat for birds, too. So you might get a hummingbird, let's say, nesting in a basswood tree. Uh, so really useful there. and. You know, with most of most of the flowering trees and shrubs, you're going to get blooms early in the season, typically spring, early summer. But you could also try to extend flowering season with these plants as well. Another good one for bees is buttonbush, which is a native wetland plant that has these really interesting white globular flowers. That's really midsummer. Or you could grow a summer sweet or sweet pepper bush, uh, Clethra ulnifolia which is another little bit later summer bloomer that attracts bees and butterflies both. And when we're talking about trees and shrubs, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that there's this whole sort of field of agroforestry and a lot of interesting techniques, especially if you have um, a larger property. Um, You know, one thing I've read a little bit about, I'm not sure if you are able to speak to this or not, Emma, is that incorporating windbreaks 
you know, kind of hedgerows and different things to provide a calmer place for, for bees to fly where the wind isn't hitting them so hard. Um, that can be an interesting thing to incorporate. If you happen to live on shoreline, you know, thinking about that buffer zone um, and, and providing value to, to bees and other pollinators in, in that riparian area. I mean, on really large properties, thinking about even like alley cropping with some of these really valuable plants um, or really valuable trees rather. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about with agroforestry, but when, if you're on a larger property, in addition to what we'll talk about later, which is these larger scale meadows, there are other, other projects you can do as well. Totally. Yeah. I, I second everything you just said. Okay, we'll leave it at that because I don't think either of us are too prepared to talk about that. But may, we may have a guest on at some point that can that can expand on that. Something I do know that you're prepared to talk about because it's a a passion area for you are lawns. Um, I I think uh, <laughs> I mean I I say that only half kidding, but on on one side of the spectrum there is the perfect green grass lawn, which we know is a high input piece of land. Uh, grass is not going to look that good without some interventions. And those interventions could include the use of pesticides, the use of herbicides for controlling weeds. It certainly requires a lot of, of water, which is not necessarily uh, connected directly to bees, uh, but is certainly a sustainability issue. And it's also... I think there's an opportunity cost, right? When you maintain a very large area of, of lawn, it brings up the question of, hey, what else could I be doing with this land? Does it need to be lawn or do, rather does the entire piece of land need to be lawn or might you experiment with some other land uses in at least some of those areas that maybe you're just not actually using as a high traffic area um, or, or one of the many reasons why having some, some lawn is actually very helpful. Um, so what are your thoughts kind of on that side of the spectrum on areas that are lawn and you want to keep as lawn, but you also want to reduce maybe any potential negative impacts um, from that area on bees? So one thing I guess I'm thinking about with, with lawns is that there is your very traditional lawn care program or approach, like you mentioned, where you're you're putting down a bunch of, let's say, herbicides potentially um, to be killing off weeds uh, or maybe even some insecticides too if you're really concerned about grubs or chinch bugs or, or some other pest insect in the lawn. It is definitely possible to have a, a really good-looking, healthy lawn without using herbicides or insecticides. The trick is that it tends to be, a, it can be a bit more expensive and or more labor-intensive. So instead of using that herbicide, you could be out hand-weeding instead. Uh, instead of using a bunch of, let's say, um, insecticides, there might be a biological control instead. So like one thing for grubs that's getting some attention is the use of parasitic nematodes, uh, which are little round worms that you'd put in the soil. That's a little bit tricky. Uh, and you definitely more expensive and may not always be effective because that's very dependent on the conditions of the soil. You know, if there's enough water, if it's the right temperature, if they've been stored properly. 
Uh, but th- there are alternative options, I guess, is what I'm trying to say um, to some of the, let's say, really, really toxic um, pesticides that are that are used, let's say, for for grub control that can have an impact on pollinators as well if they're exposed. Um, you know, if you are willing to relax your standards a little bit on what the perfect lawn looks like, allowing some weeds to grow in the lawn is great. You know, I know a lot of people tout dandelions as being really excellent for for bees. I'm kind of hit or miss on that for lawn areas just because dandelions can take over so quickly and really be an aesthetic issue. But I do think that a, a more permanent planting or incorporation of, of clover can be really excellent for the lawn. And this is twofold. Clover is going to bloom, so it's going to provide good uh, foraging habitat for bees, uh, that nectar and possibly some pollen. And then clover as well is is going to uh, fix its own nitrogen. So that plant actually has nodules on its roots. So it can take nitrogen from the air and turn it into soil nitrogen or nitrogen in a form it can use. And then if you are returning grass clippings to your lawn, so when you mow, instead of bagging the clippings, um, you return those clippings to the to the soil, the nitrogen that was locked up in that clover foliage then gets returned to the lawn. So you're, you're fertilizing less. Hopefully you have a little bit more sustainable lawn in general and you're, you're feeding pollinators. Clover's not going to be probably appropriate for every lawn situation because it's, it's not the most drought tolerant. Nor does it make a, a very good standalone lawn because it grows in patches. So it will expand outwards. So you'll have a lot of bare patches that are going to fill in with weeds. But something I, I found interesting to learn a, a number of years ago is that clover was once a normal component of lawns up until the 1950s, actually, with the introduction of some of the modern herbicides that we now have was clover pushed out. Uh, but it, it used to be part of a perfectly acceptable lawn. And I'd say adding some in, in most cases, unless you have a really dry, droughty soil, clover is going to be a good choice. Yeah. And, and I'd say even farther on that spectrum, like all the way to having that perfect lawn, I still think there are little tweaks that you can make to just be a little bit more supportive to pollinators. And frankly, we, we speak to people all the time who are really just not willing to budge on their standards. So at that point, it is about making those small tweaks. So I'd say one thing is if you're going to put down a traditional grub control product, make sure you're keeping those flowering weeds mowed down because there there are concerns about if you're using a systemic product, which is um, which is what the majority of people I think are using these days for grub control. Those those ones that you're putting down in the spring, uh, there there's there are some concerns, and the the jury is still I think out to some extent on this issue, but um, on 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 what might happen. Uh, when bees visit those flowering weeds. So keeping those mowed down over the summer while that grub control product is doing its work is is a good safe option for you. Um, and, and I'd also say really try and avoid those contact insecticides uh, that you might use over the summer or in the fall to deal with grubs because those do have you know, a harsher environmental impact. And some of the newer preventative grub control products 
um, are less harmful to bees and other pollinators. And, and so the, the science and, and innovation is heading in the right direction on this stuff, which is great. Um, and on the weed killer topic, you know, a lot of times you'll have a lot of success controlling many of these broadleaf weeds in the fall, well after they're done flowering. Um, in, in many cases. So I, I think that it's worth considering, even though a lot of people are thinking about weed control in the spring and summer, I think it's worth actually many times waiting to apply until the fall when you're going to maybe have more success and less impact at the same time. What are your thoughts on, on those ideas? I think you're spot on with the grub control. Uh, with the weed control, it's going to be important to identify which weed you actually have. So if, if you were really battling annual weeds, so weeds that complete their whole life cycle from seed to flower to seed in a single growing season, those are really going to need to be treated in the spring. But if you're dealing with a perennial weed issue, so like dandelions or, or ground ivy or uh, veronica speedwell, those could be treated in the fall. So you're absolutely right about that, Nate. And a lot of times herbicides do tend to be more effective later in the season, so late summer, early fall, or even in some cases after the first frost uh, on on perennial species. Yeah, and and with clover, by the way, clover is one of those broadleaf weeds. So if you're introducing clover intentionally to your lawn and then using broadleaf weed killers, I don't think you're going to be so happy with the result there. But Early fall is a great time to maybe head to your your local garden center um, or farm supply store, pick up some white clover and and consider overseeding your lawn, maybe in some of those uh, sparser patches and incorporating some of that clover. I think that's going to that's going to perform really nicely. And and that could be just step one for you um, in sort of moving in that transformational direction, or that could be your 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 end point it really just depends on on what you're looking to do now and there's also really just alternatives to lawns right you still want something low growing um, maybe something that you keep mowed down or something that just naturally stays low growing that can perform nicely instead of a lawn what do you do you have any recommendations for those uh lawn alternatives like rather than turning it into a garden you still want something that essentially performs the same purpose um, for parts of your yard where you're not doing a whole lot of walking around your pets aren't going out there much it's it's kind of just an area that is is there and you kind of want to look nice but don't need it to be grass there definitely are some lawn alternatives out there I think the key there is really what the what the planned use in that area is going to be. Like you mentioned, Nate, if this is a spot where nobody's going to be walking around, if kids aren't going to be playing, pets aren't going to be exercising, then you have a few more options. But if you're expecting it to still stand up to abuse, to, to yard games or whatever else, like a, a traditional lawn, you're really going to be better off sticking with turf grasses. But, you know, if you fall into you know, that camp of having an area that you would just like to let go a little bit. There are definitely some ground covers which will tolerate, you know, a little bit of light foot traffic. If you have a a shadier area, one plant that I often think is worth consideration is a juga, uh, also known as bugleweed or carpet bugle. 
It's not native. By the way, that's probably something that's growing in many of your lawns already. It's possible. So bugleweeds, it's sold as a ground cover for shadier areas in the landscape. And a lot of times it escapes because it does such a good job of, of spreading as a ground cover. It might migrate out of a perennial bed or somebody might have planted it there decades ago. And that original planting shifted into the lawn area. So you might not even recognize it as something that might have been planted purposefully at one point. The the green leaf, close closer to the, the straight species, is definitely more old-fashioned. There are a lot of more modern varieties that have, you know, really pretty mottled foliage or, or burgundies or pinks. And these do flower as well. So these really pretty spikes of purple flowers that bees will definitely visit. So that's what I mentioned just because it, it is tough and you can walk across it. Uh, not a lot, but a little. For sunnier areas, what gets used a lot in lawns and sometimes between pavers or alongside stepping stones in garden settings is creeping thyme. Thyme, you know, it's a, it's a culinary herb, so it's also very fragrant which some people like when they're walking through, and it does bloom as well. So you've got another potential plant in the landscape for bees to come and visit. Uh, The only thing about that is that it it does require a well-drained soil, it requires full sun, and it can be slow to establish. So unlike the the lawn grasses or or the clover that you can just drop seed for, and plant. If you're going to go with that ajuga that I just mentioned or the thyme, you're not likely going to have very good success if you just scatter seeds across bare soil. You're really going to need to start with small plants in the landscape. So it's it's more expensive to start. So this is probably not something you're going to do on a, a large scale right off the bat, but you, you might do a small little area of your lawn to start with, um, kind of going this way. There's an old saying about football, it's a game of inches, and I think maybe you could say the same here. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And of course, there are many true alternatives uh, to a lawn. Um, You can convert parts of the lawn to gardens, of course. And and we'll talk again, I, I keep teasing this, we'll talk about meadow conversions too, but for gardens, the vegetable garden, I think, is is actually important to spend a minute on because that's an area where people may be using pesticides potentially to try and control pests. At the same time, we rely on bees and other pollinators to pollinate some of our veggies. So there's potential conflicts that can occur in the vegetable garden. And then, of course, many people... Uh, do companion planting uh, with certain flowers that are attracting bees and those flowers maybe are really beneficial for bees or, you know, maybe some aren't bringing as much to the table. So there are some different issues to kind of tease out, I think, in the garden. Did What, what are your basic tips there? Well, in terms of insect pest management in the veggie garden, unless you have a, a massive garden and not enough time on your hands, a lot of the pest insects can be hand-picked, which basically means just going out, collecting them by hand, and either squishing them, which not my preference, or quickly doing away with them by putting them in some soapy water. If you keep up with that, you know, ideally, if you're doing it every single day, uh, maybe 
if not that, you know, every other day. Usually pest populations, and this is this is with a lot of the beetles, um, they're not going to get out of hand. You know, there might still be a little bit of feeding, but recognizing that a little bit of feeding damage to the plants in your garden is okay. Uh, it's going to be a good thing, and it's definitely going to be important for, for bees. Yeah, I, I was just talking to a gardener this morning who had seen a few holes on the leaves of his pepper plants and had already responded with a broad-spectrum insecticidal dust. And, you know, I looked at it, and, I, you know, and when we talked about it, I basically said, you're not growing peppers for the leaves, and the 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 damage is is pretty minor here. It, you it may it may even be acceptable, especially if you don't see it getting worse. And I think that that made sense, and I, I think we just sometimes respond to any kind of damage by assuming that it's going to turn into a tidal wave, and we're going to come out the next day, and our plants are going to be gone, and all our hard work is going to be ruined. And you know, oftentimes. Uh, we're we're putting plants in the garden and just like the flowers and weeds and everything naturally in the landscape insects are going to munch on them a bit so i mean we we covered this really well in the last episode with with anna but i think it's worth repeating uh, that really pesticides should be used as a last resort um especially in the vegetable garden cuz like you said how big is your garden? Is it really something where you where where you can't take a little bit of time to go around and do some hand picking, some monitoring? I know there are a few pests that may be an exception, but by and large, you know, there's 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 a lot. Uh, most of the insects, it it really shouldn't even be something worth considering. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think for the majority of home gardens, hand picking is going to be ideal. And for those who might be a little squeamish about insects. I think that that's part of your journey as a gardener, getting yeah. more comfortable being around insects, even even handling insects, even if that means with gloves. Yeah, because it's definitely if you were if you were trying to be a good steward for the bees, that's probably the number one approach for pest management in your vegetable garden. I do think it gets more complicated when you're growing something like a fruit tree, especially if you're on a spray program. Not to say that you can't follow a spray program and be supportive of bees at the same time, because you you absolutely can. They're not mutually exclusive at all. But there's also, I simply put, even people that grow a few fruit trees, if you have high expectations about those fruits, unlike in the vegetable garden, hand picking is often not going to have the same utility. And and we're typically relying more on sprays in those settings and UNH extension and, and other extensions provide very thoughtful science-based schedules uh, to guide gardeners. But certainly if you maybe have your fruit trees too close to your flower garden or, or something else, uh, there could be drift issues. And um, if, if, if you're not following that schedule um, or you're um, – Maybe using one of those multi-purpose products with a long residual, doing that before bloom, but maybe too close to bloom. You know, there, there, there could be an issue, you know, a big issue there potentially. So I think, I think that's just an area where we need to be a little bit more thoughtful. Absolutely. No, you're, you're spot on with that, Nate. Uh, there are definitely some insects of, of fruits and veggies too. Um, but they're harder to manage in fruit trees that are devastating for the crop, potentially, if populations are high. 
So spraying is often appropriate, but using one of these spray schedules that you just mentioned is so important so that you're putting insecticide on only when it's needed. You know, when it comes to using pesticides, I, I, I really think we should actually talk specifically about how to limit impacts on pollinators when using pesticides, because I mean, one aspect is product choice. If you understand how to read a label, you can look at those labels and they're going to have explicit information on there about the risk to to bees and, uh, and, and other insects and wildlife in the environment. And so you can simply look at that information and that may help you make an educated decision on product choice. But like we talked about kind of at the beginning of the episode, time of day um, that you're spraying, I, I really like to encourage people to pay attention to how windy it is. Because if you're spraying and there's a decent wind, you know, who who knows where that, that might drift to. So picking really calm days, spraying in the early morning or maybe even better um, in the evening um, is, is, is going to be a good choice. And just generally, like staying away from, fla- uh, from flowering plants when you're spraying, it, you really, I mean, in my mind, they're are very few, if any, exceptions to the rule that, you know, gardeners just shouldn't be spraying flowering plants. I I know that in, you know, certain settings, maybe you're growing roses and you're you're managing pests in that setting. I know that people use, you know, systemic products uh to battle to battle pests while roses are blooming, for example. And you can think of other examples, I'm sure, but by and large, and certainly in my garden, you know, that's a rule I stick to. I know there's a a botanist out there somewhere who's cringing when they listen to us talking about flowering plants uh, versus non-flowering plants in the landscape. The key there is plants that are insect pollinated. Uh, You don't want to be spraying anything around plants that are insect pollinated. So things like grasses, these are plants that still have flowers, right? But they're wind pollinated. So Mm, there's less of a risk to pollinators um, if you're treating just a, a grass area versus an area that's filled up with with asters or goldenrod or or coneflower or something like that. Yeah, that nuance is important. Thank you. Do you do you have any other thoughts on on how we we can li- limit those impacts uh, if and when we need to use a product? Absolutely. For a lot of pests, it gets a little bit trickier with the, the home garden situation. But there's there's often a whole list of potential insecticides that are going to work against a particular pest insect. Uh, And if we're really committed to helping out bees, we're going to do our homework and we're going to choose the least toxic option that's still going to be effective. So that that often does require a little bit of work because you might find a, a university fact sheet that lists, I don't know, five, six, seven different possible insecticides that will work. But doing a, a little bit more homework, as Nate said, looking at those product labels, looking for, for warnings about treating near pollinators is going to be key. In general, the insecticides that tend to be a little bit friendlier are the ones that are contact insecticides, which means the product needs to actually be applied to the pest insect itself. So some of the insecticidal soaps and oils are... Better options in the, the systemic products, like you mentioned, Nate, um, or, or anything that is going to put a, a residue on plant tissue that's going to poison an insect if it eats it. 
Um, probably the exception there is something like uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is only going to impact caterpillars. It's not going to impact really anybody else. Yeah. Uh, maybe one other tip I would have is avoiding using pesticides before rain, um, or even if the forecast predicts heavy dew. Uh, because many of these products are pose risk, and, and the label will say this, to aquatic organisms. So that mix of water and soil and, um, in that product is, is something to be aware of, especially for products that have a longer residual. So looking at the weather forecast, not only for wind, but, but for rain. You know, Emma had already talked about her concerns about sprays for mosquitoes and ticks. I mean, definitely if you hire a service, do that understanding. I think that there are going to be some impacts no matter what, but certainly keeping, keeping a wide berth from, uh, from plants that are in flower. And like Emma said, of course, that are insect pollinated and, and, the, and you may have to give per, pretty specific instructions, not necessarily assuming, um, that, that the applicator is extremely educated on that topic. They, they may or may not be. And one other thought um, for any beekeepers that are listening, you're probably saying, hey, make sure there aren't any local beehives or communicate with uh, with neighbors that may have beehives. But for example, if you are treating for ticks, uh, mosquitoes, and, and your neighbor next door maintains beehives close to your property, you know, that could be an issue and, and is, is worth doing serious due diligence on. Uh, well, we've teased it, or I guess I've teased it, uh, but let, let's talk about Wildflower Meadows, Emma. You've you've helped consult uh, with me a little bit on on a on a project I'm trying to do. I think in a kind of tougher area on a severe slope with with some part sun and full sun components, which is a little challenging. But uh, uh, in general, what is a wildflower meadow? My understanding is part of it is just that it is a a piece of land of some sort of minimum size. It's bigger than a garden setting um, and, and a space that you're going to treat differently than a pollinator garden, but with potentially huge rewards and, and ultimately a very low maintenance space. If you do your prep work um, and you kind of follow a series of steps uh, to get where you're going, um, the, the the rewards can be incredible. And that's what I'm excited about. Totally. So I think of wildflower meadows as being more or less uncultivated spaces where you are just once established, allowing the native plants that you you grew from from seed or or from starts in that area do what they're going to do. So letting them bloom without deadheading, not doing a whole lot of mowing or weeding. This is a spot where you're you're just trying to let nature run its course. The majority of really successful wildflower meadows are going to have a, a mix of, of, like I said, wildflowers, as well as native grasses, too. So you have really what ends up looking like a field, which is just chock full of insect-pollinated plants. The reason the, the grasses are included in there, too, I think is kind of twofold. Uh, one, grasses do a better job stabilizing soil than really anything else. Number two, uh, grasses can also provide good nesting habitat for some uh, native insects. But yeah, if you have a really functional meadow, it's going to be providing all sorts of habitat and forage 
And all you're really going to be asked to do is just mow it once a year or maybe once every other year. What are the maybe some of the common mistakes or questions that you get most often about meadow establishment? Because, of course, we can direct people to our resources that are extensive and and research based on how to establish a wildflower meadow in our region. But kind of going beyond that, um, what are the hurdles you're seeing for people? I think one of the biggest problems is not having the patience to totally control weeds before sowing seeds. It's really, really critical to prepare a good seed bed for planting. And that means suppressing as many weed seeds in the soil as possible. I think sometimes people are are a little anxious, so they want to get their, their meadow going right away. So they might, let's say, cultivate the soil. They might till it a bunch of times. Or they might spray an area uh, with herbicide to knock it down. But if you just do this once, so if you just go through and till once, or if you just spray once, um, or if you if you're you know let's say smothering weeds, but you do it with a tarp or something, you only do it for a short period of time, let's say a month or so, you probably haven't done a good enough job of of killing the existing weeds that are weed seeds that have come up to the surface and could germinate. So the really expensive wildflower seed that you bought to plant in that area may not do as well because it's going to have to compete with a lot of really aggressive weeds. So that that can be a challenge. I think sometimes, too, the time of year people plant can have an impact on their success. If you are growing a, a mix that's really heavy on these, these insect-pollinated wildflowers and fewer grasses, it's going to be ideal to actually sow that in the fall. Uh, even into early winter, because these broadleaf plants do require, the majority of them, a cold period in order for that seed to break dormancy. So these seeds have a a built-in mechanism that basically prevents them from germinating until they've experienced a cold period. So going through a natural winter helps them germinate at a higher rate in the spring. Uh, If you are just trying to sow grasses, though, warm season grasses, which is most of the native grasses we have in New Hampshire, with those, you're going to be better off sowing in the spring because they tend to germinate better once the soil temperature is warmer. Uh, and they, they don't do quite as well with that fall sowing. So figuring out what you got going on, I think for the majority of people, though, sowing in the fall is going to be the ideal. And then I think probably the, the last area where you might run into some trouble is just with your seed selection. You can, there are all sorts of different mixes online from different companies. The ones that tend to be the best definitely have both a a grass and wildflower component and are heavier in perennial wildflowers. And ideally, this should be a more defined definition of wildflower. I mean, it really should be something that's native to Eastern North America. And some of the cheaper mixes have just a whole bunch of annual flowers in them instead of the perennial species. So you might have something that looks really great the first season when you have all these blooms, maybe kind of okay the next season, and then gradually just kind of becomes a weedy mess because you don't have any long-term perennial plants there take over. If you want color that first year, I think you're better off just mixing a few annual seeds in with your, your perennial seed mixture. 
One other thing that comes to mind is we've gotten a few questions from people who are essentially in a, in a tough spot where they have a cleared site and it needs to be planted, but it's springtime and they're looking for, okay, like I, I understand we're supposed to seed in the fall, probably even sort of mid to late fall, early winter, like you're talking about. So how do I bridge that gap? And I think uh, one option potentially can be buckwheat. Um, which is a cover crop with that is in and of itself supportive to bees and and is also a cover crop to consider um, for maybe a large garden site too uh, that that can be a nice bridge between the spring and the fall um, for letting an area rest and providing habitat and forage for bees. What are your thoughts on strategies like that? I think that that's a really good plan. And like you mentioned, the buckwheat is probably one of the better cover crops for pollinators. One other one you, you might look at is, is some of the clovers. So not the white clover, because that one is perennial and will come back year after year and might be challenging to get rid of uh, if you don't want it in an area. But some of the others, like like crimson clover, could be a, a good option for just covering over the soil before you get a chance to plant uh, the only thing to consider if you're using a cover crop is that you might need to terminate it, meaning knock it down in some way, whether that means mowing or whether that means the use of an herbicide or, or tilling uh, in order to uh, have a clean seed bed to put your wildflower seed down. Yeah, and, and the, the termination method is going to depend on the particular cover crop you're using. Um, so that, and that's worth considering when you choose your cover crop is understanding when and how you're going to terminate it and making sure you're comfortable and able to execute kind of that termination strategy. Cause some, some cover crops are designed for farmers with heavy equipment and, you know, aren't really going to be appropriate for, for a garden setting where you're, in, unless you have that heavy equipment, which you may, you know, m- many property owners do have the equipment that, that you would need, but just worth considering, you know, and I, I had mentioned kind of other parts of the yard, maybe places that we're not cultivating that don't have a specific use like a meadow. Those areas are worth considering too. Some of the features that you may have in your New Hampshire landscape might be like a rock wall that could potentially provide good habitat. Um, certainly just parts of your yard where leaves fall under trees and they're more naturalized settings. Those can be really important for bees and other pollinators, potentially, oh, you know, providing water sources, just providing bare dirt, by the way, where there, there aren't plants growing. A lot of times for, for many of us, there's going to be bare dirt in parts of our yards, whether we like it or not. Um, but if, if that's not the case, if you just have every inch of your property manicured, uh, you may not be providing the habitat you might want to for for certain ground nesting bees. Um, what, what what tips do you have, and how can you kind of build on that surface level explanation, Emma? Totally. Well, having some of this more naturalized area where you're just leaving the leaves, uh, where you're you're not having things quite as cultivated. A lot of times, that's really important overwintering habitat for pollinators, for, for bees, as well as a whole other suite of native insects. So that's key. Something else I think that's important that might make a lot of people kind of uncomfortable is leaving some dead brush around the property or, or a dead tree. These are going to potentially, you know, this, these dead wood 
is possible nesting habitat for some species of ground nesting bees, uh, or not ground nesting, sorry, of some species of native bees. Uh, it's also potentially good habitat for, for birds, too, and, and other wildlife. So leaving that snag tree on the property is going to be a good thing, too. And if you decide that you want to have a bee house, which a lot of people do, either they enjoy making their own with kind of their, their Pinterest DIY project or purchasing one, make sure you do your homework to the point that you know that the size holes, let's say, in the bee house or the size canes that have been included are, are the right diameter for bees to use them because they are picky. Different species will use different diameter uh, holes if it's a drilled hole in a board or something uh, or canes and make sure that those those holes or those canes are deep enough for some of these insects they they want a really long drilled hole so you know six or more inches deep otherwise they won't use it so before you spend a bunch of time on this project or, or you buy something that's kind of expensive make sure you know that you've gotten one that's actually going to help out the pollinators We'll we'll dig up uh, some some written instructions. That, uh, I'm sure there's a link either on our website or somewhere else that that gives instructions for how to create your own or or at least or what to look for when buying a bee house or bee hotel, whatever you want to call it. Um, okay, so here's my closing question for you, Emma. Oh, we've been going a while. We're pretty much out of time here. So, leaving the leaves. Let's let's get into that a little bit more. How long should you leave the leaves and why? In a perfect world, you would always leave the leaves. So you're not going to be scooping those up and carrying them away at any point just because insects are, are going to be coming out of dormancy at different times. And it's it's really hard for us to guess, you know, who's in there and who we're going to be removing or disturbing when we take the leaves out of our garden. Uh, I think that's why something like a, a meadow can be so helpful because you really aren't manipulating that area that much. But if you are looking for, you know, a a really manicured garden, let's say, uh, and you've been leaving most leaves, I would wait to do it until you're really starting to see a lot of uh, new growth on the plants in your garden. So waiting as long as possible. Um, I've seen different temperature recommendations out there uh, in terms of, you know, what what the outside temperature should be before you do it. Um, I the way I prescribe to it is just wait as long as possible. You know, I, I might not get to doing that until well into May, let's say, before I'm I'm trying to scoop up leaves and. Even then, I, I think some of this is just changing our expectations for what the landscape should look like or what's acceptable for a tidy garden. A lot of times, fallen leaves or even debris just from the garden makes a great mulch, and you're going to have fewer weed issues if you just leave that stuff alone rather than stirring it up and bringing in a new, let's say, bark or wood mulch. So if you can, if you can tolerate just perhaps a, a little bit of messiness in the spring, because it's always in the spring that things look the worst in the garden. Once, if your plants are are grown densely enough in your garden, once they put on new growth, you're not even going to notice a lot of that debris. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to kind of close this out here with that next step. What, what people 
can do because you're we've we've given some tips and kind of walked through some different topics, but a lot of times to really make actionable steps, it may help to have some kind of rubric. Uh, so there are organizations that have created pollinator garden certifications, uh, and the, and these vary. Uh, there are some that uh, just provide some general guidelines, and it's more of a voluntary sort of um, statement of intent, right? To to say I'm certifying my garden, and you know that means that I'm doing these things. Um, but there may not be a whole lot of due diligence, and then there are other certification programs that are much more in depth. And that's actually something that we're working on at UNH Extension uh, with our partners at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension is is partnering on developing a, a certification program for, for gardeners in New Hampshire. Um, they've, they've created a fantastic program and we're, we're working on making that available to New Hampshire gardeners as well. And, and I'd, I'd say rec- I'd recommend taking a look at their website, which goes through things in a very methodical, systematic way uh, to really do your due diligence on vetting your garden and your property at large to see how you can better support bees and other pollinators. Because take home message, even folks on small properties, um, there's a tremendous amount we can all do to support bees and other pollinators, um, irregardless of what's going on around us. Um, there, there's really no property too small to make a big difference. This episode's featured plant is Cosmos, Cosmos by Panatus. Cosmos are a very common garden annual, and for good reason. They're easy to grow in average, well-drained soil in full sun, and bloom from June up until frost if the spent flowers are deadheaded. Cosmos are a member of the daisy family, as evidenced by their saucer-shaped, daisy-like flowers. And although native to Mexico, Cosmos thrive in New Hampshire summers, and can either be directly sown outdoors just before the last spring frost date or started indoors six to eight weeks before the last spring frost date. The things I like about Cosmos are their delicate thread-like leaves and range of flower colors, including white, pink, red, and bicolor. Plants also range in height from dwarf to tall, so they can be used in a variety of garden settings. Best of all, Cosmos are visited by many bee species, including green metallic sweat bees and longhorn bees. That's all for today's show on supporting bees and other pollinators in our yards and gardens. But don't let that put an end to the conversation. Email us at gsg.pod at unh.edu with your lingering questions that you'd like featured on the podcast, feedback on this episode and the podcast generally, and of course, suggestions for future episodes. While New Hampshire may grow rocks, you, my friends, grow pollinator gardens. So keep on growing Granite State Gardeners. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Talk to you soon. And thanks for listening, as always. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. 
inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.